Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right. Hi. Welcome to Murder in the Land of Oz. My name's Jess. Hi, everyone. I'm Ellen. And this has been a fucking CIA covert operation to get this fucking podcast recorded tonight because Ellen decided to move to Hobart and has made everything very difficult. I'm so sorry, but hopefully the sound quality exists in this episode, unlike some of our previous remote attempts. Yeah, God. So weird. So So, funny. Look, we're doing our level best. We're doing our fucking level best. Um, so it's part two of Ellen's, uh, escapade on yes. Ned Kelly because, escapade. well, I don't know. What, what do you want to call episode? I don't know. I yeah. just thought escapade sounded a bit more fancy. Escapade you know? is what it's turned into because I started writing this podcast like three months ago and now we're finally recording it. We are tizzy chookies. We got so much stuff going on. So much stuff going on. We have some housekeeping to do. Oh, do we? Yes, oh, we, we have a new Patreon. Patreon. What's the Still name of Patreon? Patreon or Patron? Her name's Claire. She's stunning. Claire. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for sponsoring us. We really appreciate it. We are going to be having some new Patreon content going up. Yeah, this this week. This week, I think. Um, it's yeah. a bit different content because I've decided I want to talk about a talk about a murder that I've always wanted to talk about. Yes, it's not Australian. Whoa. I know, we're branching out. We're branching out, but it's a case that I really wanted to talk about. It's the murder of Didi Blanchard, which is going to be fucking stunning. So stunning. So if you want to listen to Jess's interpretation of that case. Interpretation. (laughs) Um, Also, we are almost at uh, 5,200 subscribers, which is so exciting. That's amazing. And also, we're coming up on our anniversary, aren't we? I know, a year of doing Mitloo. That's crazy. I know. When we started this podcast, I had a bob. You did. And I was in a long-term committed relationship. Yep. How things have changed. How things have changed. My hair is now very long. And I am desperately single. (laughs) I'm so glad we've had our 5,200 subscribers to support us on this hair and relationship journey. I know. What a tizzy time. This has all been so tizzy. Um, Tizzy is Jess's new word, if our listeners couldn't tell. Yes, tizzy is a great word which can be used in many different circumstances. It's kind of like busy, but I think it's like a level up from busy. Right. I don't know if I'm tizzy. No, I... I feel like I'm a little bit on the tizzy spectrum. but You're for sure tizzy. I don't really know what it means, but I know that you're tizzy. <laughs> if I know one thing, it's that you're a tizzy chucky. My area manager at work first said it to me a few weeks ago because I had one of, you know, those frappuccinos we love from Starbucks, the yes. cake drinks? Yes. 
Um, so I had a midnight mocha, which is like a mocha, then they put a layer of whipped cream in, then more mocha, then more whipped cream. And I had it out the back room and Chris was mm-hmm. like, whose fucking tizzy drink is this? I was like, that is the perfect word to describe this frappuccino. Yes, that's a very tizzy frap and you're a very tizzy I'm a tizzy girl in a tizzy world, you know? Okay. Anyway, let's okay. talk let's talk more about Ned Kelly, shall we? Before we begin the content of the episode, I just wanted to show you, and I don't know if you're going to be able to see it through the Skype camera, but I wanted to show you my Ned Kelly t-shirt that oh, I'm you currently wearing. fucking loser. <laughs> just so everyone's aware, um, so we have a bit more of an understanding on the cues between us both. I've got Skype up on my phone so I can see Ellen because what happened with the episode when we were recording, not only was the sound quality really shit, we couldn't get any like visual cues off of each other. So we were talking on top of each other. Yes. But now I can see Jess's beautiful face and she can see my weirdly blue washed out face and my Ned no, Kelly t-shirt. You're beautiful. Australian legend you, Bush Ranger. So oh, speaking of Australian legend Bushranger. Speaking of Australian Outback legends, should we get into it? So we're <laughs> we're on to part two now. So when we left off, um, Ned and Co were hiding out in the Victorian bush after murdering three people, um, as you do, as you do. So as you do, basically, you know, as I said, Ned and his gang were already, you know, pretty top of the pops. Everybody knew who they were. This was kind of like a oh fuck, like. Everybody's like, oh, Ned and their gang running around, stealing horses, having a good time. Now they're like, this is a bit questionable. Um, So it went all the way up to, everybody's just like tugging their shirt collars, being like, not sure how I feel about this. Um, But it went all the way up to the Victorian (laughs) Parliament and they decided to increase um, the reward for the capture of each of the members of the Kelly gang. So the reward went up to £500 per man. And they also introduced this act act into Parliament called the Felons Apprehension Act. So basically this law meant that any person, policeman or not, was allowed to basically use whatever force necessary to capture one of the Kelly gang. So if you were just like a homeboy, like out on the town and you happened to spy Ned Kelly, you could fully shoot him and like it was legal. Um, So obviously the Kelly gang, not a huge fan of that. Um, The Kelly sympathizers were also like, this feels like a violation of our human rights. Um, But it was the 1880s in Victoria. So what could you do? Not much. So they're basically, yeah, at this point in time, they're like outlawed. So being a member of the Kelly gang is illegal. Anybody can shoot a Kelly gang member on site. The Kellys are given um, until the 12th of November, 1878, to turn themselves in, which, of course, they don't. Um, And "Mm, what happens? They're like, turn up. They're like in the bush, like probably not even knowing what's going on, like (laughs) starting fires with sticks and like eating kangaroo meat. Um, (laughs) But what kind of happens is that like in combination with the reward money, which is like £2,000 in total now for the four people, and also the fellow the Felons Apprehension Act, everybody and his dog is going out there like, I'm going to catch me a Kelly. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to put him on my wall. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut his head off and put it on my wall and make it sing a little song. <laughs> like those fish. Like those fish. Exactly like those fish. Um... So, yes, uh, everybody and his dog, including the police, are out hunting the Kellys. The Kellys are like, the Kelly gang are like, all righty, let's go and um, 
hide out somewhere. They try and hang out um, at the house of their friend Baumgarten, who we may remember from being the person that they like stole a whole bunch of horses from and like kind of framed for a crime. So they like knock. <laughs> Holla at your boy. <laughs> they like knock on on the door and like Baumgarten's wife, Mrs. Baumgarten, answers. Um, and she's like, fuck off, Ned Kelly. No fucking way. My husband is in prison. Um, and the Kellys are like, alrighty, ma'am, see you later on. And then she, she informs the police basically that the, that, that the Kellys are in town and she tells the police that they have gone, they've headed in the direction like of a tributary of the Murray river. So the Kellys, they're wandering around in the bush. Um, they cross this freezing and like flooded river with a policeman, like in hot pursuit. It's like pissing down rain and like a raging torrent. It's like real cool and like movie like, um, you fucking so basically, love this shit. I fucking love this shit, man. <laughs> Damn, it's so sick. <laughs> I should probably mention that um, when I the reason why I have this incredibly awesome Ned Kelly shirt is because when I came down from Brisbane to Tasmania, we drove through Kelly Country and went to. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen the shaka symbol that Ellen just did. On. Oh my god! So I'm I, sorry for my squealing that someone mentioned in the reviews um, a few weeks ago, yeah. but that ain't fucking stopping. Sorry, Presh. Sorry, Presh. But no. So I went. I went to most of the locations that I'm going to talk about in this episode. So you get a little bit of like a vibe from like somebody who's been there of like what it's like. But anyway, I haven't been to this particular freezing part of the bush where they're hanging out. Um, uh, they're kind of like, okay, we've escaped some, from the police one more time. We need to, like, come up with a plan. So they head to the Woolshed Valley and they hang out with one of their old mates from the Greta mob, um, man by the name of Aaron Sherritt. Um, and Aaron's like, hey, Kelly Gang, my old pals, how are you doing? By the way, we can shoot you on site and also your reward is up to $500 a person. And also, So see you fucking later. <laughs> yeah, exactly, see you fucking later. And he's like, oh, yeah, and it's now a crime for anybody basically to be a Kelly sympathiser or to associate with you. Um, the Kelly Kang's like, cool, not super on board with that. Um, <sighs> November 12th comes and goes, which is the date that they were given to turn themselves in. They don't turn themselves in. And they basically just spend the next several months roaming around the Victorian bush being like, hmm... Hmm, what do we do? As I said, spearing wallabies and generally being bush rangers. So basically, yeah, so they're hanging out in the bush. <laughs> I'm trying to make hanging out in the bush sound sexy and exciting, but it's just not. They're just chilling in the bush, probably not showering, you know, doing whatever. Yeah. As time wears on, they're like, okay, there's only a certain amount of time we can spend roaming around in the bush. We need to do something. We need to come up with a plan. We need resources. We need shit to occur and also they kind of want to make a statement to be like you think that you can like outlaw the kelly gang you think you can tell us what to do we're gonna tell you what to do son so (laughs) potentially not like that probably not with irish accents as well no they had australian accents or like you know early weird australian accents as i said in the last episode weren't they they irish was it weren't the parents irish the parents are irish but something that like is like very um, important to do with the Kelly story is that Ned Kelly especially didn't consider himself to be Irish. He considered himself to be Australian. No, I'm, I'm not saying that he didn't consider, I, but I'm pretty sure that they would have had Irish accents. Or otherwise, the show that I just saw about Ned Kelly, off-brand for Jess. <laughs> what? Kelly by Matthew Ryan, I saw a few weeks ago. Oh, which my was God. About, cool. 
the night before Ned Kelly's execution. Um, Thank you for spoiling the end of this episode, Jess. Of course he's dead. I had all this poignant stuff about him getting executed and I'm going to have to skip over it because everybody's already going to know. Nah, fuck it. Nah, keep, you got to say it. But yeah, I saw a play about Ned Kelly and they all used Irish accents. Well, okay. Every time I, every time Ned Kelly speaks from now on, I'll put on an Irish accent. How does that sound? Nah. Really? Top of the morning to you. There we go. I'm so good at accents. Anyway, back to the content of the episode. So So on the 8th of December, 1878, uh, Joe Byrne rides into the town of Euroa, where I've been. Um, he sits down, <laughs> he's hanging out at the hotel there, he's having a meal and drinking a few pints, kind of listening around to, you know, see what the chat of the town is. He discovers that, um, a much loved young lad in the town has died, um, and that at some point everybody in the town is going to be attending his funeral. And Aww. he's like, hmm, interesting, file away. So he goes back to where the Kelly gang is hiding out in the bush and reports back on kind of like the lay of the town, um, the fact that there's only one police officer stationed there, um, where the location of the bank is, and the fact that everybody is going to be off at a funeral um, at a particular point in time. So the next day, the gang roll out. They head to Faithful's Creek Station, which is just on the outskirts of town, um, where they politely hold up the housekeeper and the senior station hand, saying that they need... Politely. Politely. They're polite. They're like, excuse me. Sir, will you please feed and water our horses? Also, if you don't, I'll kill you. Bullshit. They were very polite. Um, You would fucking like to think, mate. Did you read the 1,000-page Ned Kelly book or did I, Jess? (laughs) All right, whatever. All right. So, yeah, so they just basically are like, we just need refreshment and a place to chill out for a bit and food and water for our horses. Um. And he informs the housekeeper and the the housekeeper and the station hand, which are a lovely couple by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Fitzgerald. He's like, just letting you know, I'm Ned Kelly, the murderer. I'm Ned fucking Kelly. I'm Ned son. fucking Kelly, bitch. So you better do what I want, <laughs> but in a polite way. But in a really, really polite just way. Just in a really polite Irish way. Um. So they bring him to the stable so they can put their horses down. Um. And. Ned, like, rolls up and, like, the, the stable man is there. The stable master is there. His name is Stevens. And he's like, do you know who I am? And Stevens says jokingly, perhaps you are Ned Kelly. <laughs> and Ned is like, you're a good guesser. <laughs> and the station hand is like, what the fuck is happening? Why is Ned Kelly in my stables? Um, anyway, he gets over it. He tends to the horses, looks after him. Um, and then he actually has a conversation with Ned about the the police murders and Ned tells him basically exactly what went down. He was like, look, I had to shoot them or they would shoot me. And Stevens is like, hmm, interesting. Not going to threaten to shoot you because then you will shoot me. So all of the men who are working at this um, station are basically taken hostage and locked up in the storeroom. Um, but the gang is very polite to the the women and children. So they don't they don't lock them up. They're kind of free to just chill but also under the watch of one of the members of the Kelly gang. Also, you move, I'll kill you. Also, you move, I'll kill you. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, the owner of the station, a man by the name of William McCauley, comes home. He's pretty shocked to find that the Kelly gang has taken over his homestead. Um, but once Ned kind of tells him that all they want is to rest and for the horses to be looked after, um, also, of course, coupled with the fact that they have many guns. He's like, okay, fine, let's all just hang out and eat together. So 
Well, then another person arrives, a like traveling salesman uh, named Gloucester has also come by just to make this like a really random merry party. Um, and the gang are like, oh, hello, you're hawking your wares. You're kindly invited to also come and be locked up in the room with everybody else. Um, Thank you so much. So they all have a meal together. Everything's fairly civil, apart from the men being locked in the storeroom. That night, Ned and Joe Burns stay up, penning a letter that they want to send to Don Cameron, who is a member of the Victorian Parliament. So Ned and co. kind of get the vibe that Don Cameron is like a, a man of the people and that... They, he is the kind of person that will listen to some of their complaints about, you know, the the police and everything that has happened with Ned and his family and stuff like that. So they want Don Cameron mm. to publish this letter in the newspaper and kind of take up the righteous Kelly Gang cause. Don Cameron is like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> Ooh. Don Cameron is like, what, me? No way. I want to get voted in. So the content of the letter basically is about um, the the impetus for the Kelly gang crime spree being the unjust imprisonment of Ned Kelly's mother and the lies that um, Constable Fitzpatrick put about, about, you know, the attempted murder in sarcastic quotation marks. So he says that, you know, justice has been denied to the, you know, poor people of Northeast Victoria. And he says that, if Constable Fitzpatrick does not correct his lies, Ned Kelly will be the cause of greater slaughter to the rising generation than St. Patrick was to the snakes and toads in Ireland. Big yikes. Big yikes. <laughs> Big yikes energy. <laughs> um, so once their writing exercise is complete, Joe and Ned head off for a kip, and then the next morning the next phase of the p- plan begins. So firstly, they head out of the station, they go down and cut down the telegraph poles that lie parallel to the railway line so nobody can raise the alarm. They then head back up to the station to change into the nice clothes they've stolen from the travelling salesmen. So they head out for Euro proper, looking like gentlemen, not like bushrangers. Joe Byrne stays behind to guard the sizable number of people that have now been locked up in the storeroom. They take the travelling salesman's cart into town with them. And Ned has uh, got a cheque from the station owner, uh, William McCauley, that he signed. So he has a reason to go to the bank. Mm. Um. So when they get to the streets of Euroa, it's mostly empty because this is the time where everybody is kind of at home getting ready for this funeral. So the driver of the cart pulls up to the entrance of the Euroa bank. Ned walks up to the front door of the bank and knocks on the door, informing the clerk there that he has a check of Macaulay's that needs to be changed. The clerk informs him that the bank is closed and that he cannot fulfill the request, but Ned keeps on knocking. The clerk comes out again to tell Ned to fuck off, but he does not get the chance. When he unlocks the barricade on the door, Ned shoves his way in, knocking the clerk to the ground. So they tell the, they hold the clerk and the teller at gunpoint, basically, um, mm. as well as the maid and the lady of the house who are kind of in the, the house attached to the bank. So Stephen Hart has gone round the side to get anybody who may be in there. Um... They head to the office of the bank manager, who is a man named Robert Scott, and they order him to bail up as well. Ned wants, like, cash, obviously, but um, he's like, yo, Scott, give me the cash. Scott's like, you're here to take money, not to have it handed to you. Find it yourself. Ned Kelly's like, all the fucking mood. Yeah. No. Oh, God, I love that. I fucking love that. I know. So Ned's like... You're here to fucking take money. Go find it yourself. <laughs> yeah. You that's, dog. That's obviously not verbatim. Um, 
But Ned's like, okay, let me rephrase. Give me the money or I'll fuck up your family. And then Scott's like, you lay a hand on my family and I will fuck you up, Ned Kelly. (laughs) And Ned Kelly's like, love this guy. Ned Kelly's like, respect. All righty, respect, man. (laughs) Um, He grabs about 400 pounds from the bank manager's desk and shoves it into a bag. But he knows there's more in the bank storeroom. So Scott pretends he doesn't know where the keys are. So Ned goes over to the house next door where Scott's wife, children and mother-in-law reside. Um, So he gets there and he's like, I'm Ned Kelly. And Robert Scott's wife is like, Ned Kelly? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ned Kelly, what brings you to our little town? And he's like, I'm just here to rob your husband's bank. Um, so Susie Scott is like, okay, fair enough. Um, Ned's like, your husband said he doesn't know where the keys are. And Susie Scott is like, the keys are in the house. I'll find them for you. Um, so she like rummages around, finds the keys in her husband's desk and hands them over. Doing like, you know, she's a little bit like charmed, as I said, but she's also knowing that she kind of has to do what Ned Kelly wants or he will potentially kill them all. Um, can I just interject something really quickly? So... Um, Jess is back on the Tinder at the moment, so far unsuccessful, but a guy who had like a slight Ned Kelly-esque vibe actually had a photo of Ned Kelly in his profile. That's, that's pretty hectic. Can you give him my number? To, to charm the ladies. To charm the ladies. Maybe it was Ned Kelly. You don't know. Isn't he dead? You tell me, Jess. You're the one who saw a play about him <laughs> when I've done all this fucking work on this show. Anyway, so from the bank, the Kelly gang takes uh, 1,500 pounds in notes, 90 pounds of silver, 300 pounds in sovereigns, and 31 ounces of gold. Ned also That's takes a, a handful. That's a lot of fucking money. It's a lot of fucking money. Um, probably should have converted it into... Oh, no, I did convert it into today's money. Fuck, I'm genius. Um, Ned Kelly also <laughs> takes a handful of the deeds and mortgages for good measure. All in all, they end up with about £2,260, which is about 400000 Australian dollars. Oh, in, my in today's God. Money. Right? So they're fucking... You're like, so proud of him, aren't you? I know. Oh, babe. Um... Alrighty, so yes, four hundred thousand dollars in Australian dollar dues, amazing. Um, so they kidnap lightly the Scots and the maid and everybody else who was in the bank, um, and head back to Faithfuls Creek. Um, all of the prisoners basically now are released once they get there. Um, Ned Kelly gives Mrs. Fitzgerald a bag of money to be distributed amongst the prisoners for their trouble, and everybody sits around and has dinner. So they prepare Good. this. Huge meal. They all get drunk on whiskey and Ned and the gang go out and do trick riding outside to like entertain everybody. So while all this wild debauchery and fun times is going on, um, a police magistrate named Wyatt has been traveling on the train through to Benalla and he's there with this like telegraph repair guy and the telegraph repair guy is like, oh, it's so weird. All the telegraph wires in Euroa have come down. Why it's like, well, there's been no storms or anything in the area, so that seems like it could potentially be a Kelly gang-related shenanigan. Um, so when he gets to Benalla, he goes to tell the police superintendent his suspicions, and the superintendent is like, great information, but we actually have intel that the Kellys are up north heading across the Murray River, so that's where we're headed. And why it's like, so you're not going to send anybody to go and check out what's going on at Euroa? And the superintendent is like, no. So... They head off you're to... You're stupid. No, you're stupid. They head off to where... The, the police head off to where they think they have intel that the Kelly gang is. 
Um, and then Wyatt sends a telegraph to a man named Captain Standish, who is in charge of the Kelly pursuit at this point in time. Um, by the time the police superintendent gets to Albury, which is where they think the Kelly gang is hiding out, a telegraph has arrived at that like train station to let him know that the Kelly gang have just robbed a bank in Euroa and have escaped on horseback, leaving 20-odd prisoners at the Faithful Creek Station. So probably not the best day in that police officer's life. Definitely um, not. So before riding off, the Kelly gang were like, thanks for all the whiskey and the fun times. Um, wait three hours before you call the police or we'll kill you. They don't wait three hours. They raise the alarm basically as soon as the Kellys head off. Um, so the police are like, it's fine. We'll still catch them. It's fine. It's fine. Never mind our huge mistake. Um, but basically by any time, <laughs> the time any kind of police pursuit happens, the Kellys are off in the bush. Um, even with the help of Indigenous trackers, the police couldn't trace the Kellys once they had vanished, essentially. So an additional 79 officers had been dispatched on the Kelly case since the murders at Stringy Bark Creek. But the problem was is that most of them were like city cops who were like law and order SVU style, not really used to hunting down experienced bushrangers in the Victorian bush. So that kind of... You don't say. You don't say, right. That's why they're kind of able to vanish into thin air so quickly it's just because all these people who are from like Dublin are like I don't know how to ride through this dense wilderness <laughs> so some people were pretty like outraged and on their soapbox about the bank robbery at Euroa some people were like this is the sickest thing we've ever seen <laughs> Basically, like, 50-50, there was a lot of sort of, you know, hand-wringing and pearl-clutching in the papers being like, the Ned Kelly gang should be brought to justice. And other people were like, dope, hit me up with some of that stolen cash, please, Ned. Um, and <laughs> one thing that was kind of consistent across both camps, which Jess is going to, like, dismiss, but everybody agreed that he treated the prisoners and particularly the women and children very well and very respectfully. The kind of reputation of like bush rangers and stuff like that was that they were like, you know, hard ass men who would like, you know, real real criminal types, you know, they'd go and be indecent with the women and this stuff. Shit. I was it's not as if I was there. Well I wasn't either. I'm just trying to give our listeners the context. Everybody was like, he's a criminal, but he's a gentleman criminal. Um, one thing that they did when they were leaving Faithful's Creek Station, they had all the men locked up in the storeroom and they went around stealing everybody's watches, as you do. Um, and Ned took one off one guy and the prisoner told him that it was a gift from his deceased mother and Ned handed it back and said, I will never take something like that from you. So they did have this like gentlemanly, you know, respectful kind of reputation at the same time of people being like they need to be hanged for their crimes. Um, another thing that kind of came up from this is that the, the, the profile that was like put out for people to be on the lookout for was, um, you know, four men of decent size, um, riding three bay horses and one gray horse. So what sympathizers would do would be grow, go out in groups of four riding three bay horses and one gray horse to kind of throw police off the trail. So even people who weren't like full on like Kelly sympathizers were like doing their bit kind of to help the gang get away with everything. Mm. So three weeks on from the robbery at Euroa, they're still um, out in the bush, haven't been captured, no real sightings of them, no credible sightings of them. 
Um, and the police were convinced correctly that they were being helped out by their pretty far-ranging collection of sympathizers. So the Victorian police began rounding up and arresting any person who had connections with the Kelly gang under the Felons Apprehension Act. So this operation was being um, spearheaded by Captain Standish, who was basically at this point being tired of being made to look the fool by Ned Kelly. Um, So on the 2nd of January, 1879, warrants are issued for the arrest of a number of Kelly sympathisers, including Wild Wright, um, a number of Ned's cousins, the Lloyds, and a few people who are like kind of tangentially related to the Kelly family, like a man named Robert Miller, who had been married to one of Ellen Kelly's sisters who had died several years before, and he hadn't had any contact with any Kellys in some time. So these arrests, around 20 in total, were based on absolutely no evidence. The police essentially just rounded up people they thought knew the Kellys and booked them, essentially. So the friends and the... Cough them, boys. Cough bake them away, toys. So the friends and family of uh, all these people that have been in prison are naturally outraged, and it becomes a huge drama that the police are essentially arresting innocent men for doing nothing. Even the newspapers, who at this point had been, ve- like, up till this point, been very anti-Kelly, had begun writing about the injustice that was being wrought in Victoria. And, of course, when the word eventually reaches the gang hold up wherever they were, they are furious. And so they use a fair portion of the money that they stole from the bank in Euroa to fund the legal defense of their sympathizers. So the sympathizers... Oh, oh no, how nice. That's pretty stunning. The sympathizers are held on remand with hearings that occur, like, week after week for the police to beg the judge to keep holding them while they gather, gather evidence. Um, And as time stretches on, it becomes clear to the gang that they are going to need more funds if they're going to continue to help out their imprisoned sympathizers. So another plan is put in action. Uh, This time, the quarry is the very small New South Wales border town of Gerildery, which is around 70 kilometres north of the Victorian border. Its population in February... Did you go there? Yes, I did go there. It was very sick. (laughs) (laughs) It was very sick. Very sick. That's where I took the sidebar. This is where I took the photo of my dad with the Ned Kelly statue that is on my Instagram. Oh, stunning. Yeah. Um, yep, yep. So in February of 1879, its population was 400 people. And in 2019, it has only expanded to about 1,000. But unlike Euroa, Gerildery had two policemen, although one of them was only on probation. So Senior Constable George Devine was startled awake on the 8th of February by a stranger informing him that there had been a terrible row at Davidson's hotel and it was imperative that he wake up and attend immediately. Probationary Constable Henry Richards was similarly startled and they head on to the veranda, you know, putting all their police gear on and everything like that to head off to attend this row at Davidson's when they are confronted by Ned Kelly and locked inside their own jail cell. (laughs) <laughs> that's stupid <laughs> it's pretty classic stupid the gang uh, politely asked Mrs. Devine for some supper which is given and they steal Devine and Richard's uniforms and weapons in preparation for phase two which begins a couple days later so the gang head to the Royal Mail Hotel with Ned and Dan in the police uniforms Joe and Steve in regular clothes and a terrified Constable Richards holding a revolver without any bullets once inside the hotel, Richards informs the publican, who is a man named Cox, that, hello, sir, this is my friend Ned Kelly. And Ned Kelly is like, pleased to make your acquaintance. We are going to need to use one of the rooms in your hotel to hold an unknown number of prisoners. The co- the publican... Unknown. Unknown. An unknown at that point. Just anybody who wanders by. Cox is like, fair enough, Ned Kelly, you do what you want. Um, and basically, every person that wanders into the Royal Mail Hotel that day is 
politely asked to retreat to the back room to be locked up. Um, but they're also allowed to order drinks from the bar while they're being imprisoned. So everybody's like, this is an inconvenience, but it's a fun inconvenience. So Dan and Steve stay at the hotel to watch everybody. Joe Byrne heads to the Bank of New South Wales branch and finds a man there, um, an accountant by the name of Edward Living, who, <laughs> in a manner that I could only imagine being hysterically comical, comical he's waiting for the bank manager to come so when like joe byrne walks in and is like hello edward living is kind of like oh i've been waiting for you to arrive and joe byrne is like what <laughs> and then what? edward living is like you're not the bank manager and joe byrne's like no i'm a member of the kelly gang <laughs> um, sorry and then joe byrne is like yeah Classic. What a what a moment from a comedy film. Anyway, you, Edward Living, the accountant, and also um, one of the clerks that is there, a man named James Mackey, he's like, why don't you head on up to the Royal Mail Hotel? There's a nice prison cell waiting there for you. Free drinks for everybody that attends. So Joe goes and escorts these two people to the hotel. And while he's doing that, the bank manager arrives. So he's like, hmm, interesting. All my employees are gone. I'm not going to look into this in any way. What I am going to do is draw myself a bath. So so he, there's like a special room set up in the bank for this man, John, to have his baths. So he goes and he draws himself the, a bath and baths <laughs> while, this, bathes, <laughs> while this is all going down. Um, so when Joe brings the employees back to the hotel, Ned is like asking them questions and stuff. And he's saying like, when is the bank manager going to be back? We need to rob this damn bank. Um, and the employees are like, well, he should do, he should be there. He should be there by now. We don't know where he is. And then Edward Living is like, you know what John is classic for doing? Taking random baths in the middle of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Ned Ned is like each to his own, but let's, I'm going to take you with me while I investigate this situation. So Edward Living, the accountant, and Ned Kelly head back to the bank. And Edward walks into the bathroom and John is like, "Um, excuse me, I'm having a bath. And Edward is like... (laughs) It's like, um, Edward's like, um, excuse me, so we're sorry. being robbed by the Kelly gang. And John's like, oh, I should get out John, of the No, bath he's now. literally like, no, we're not. Don't be ridiculous. Keeps on bathing. And then Stephen Hart and Ned Kelly, like, come into the room with a gun and they're like, no, you're for real being robbed by the Kelly gang right now. <laughs> John Tarleton's like, alrighty, you got me. Just let me finish my bath and I'll come out and help you. Jesus fucking Christ. So he has his bath, enjoys himself, really relaxed and like just in the zone, gets dressed and is like, okay, what do you guys want me to do? He goes and unlocks. <laughs> Sorry, what? Yeah, seriously. What a ledge though. So he goes and he unlocks the safe. Um, the Kellys steal about 2,000 pounds from the bank plus some deeds and the bank's record books. So the Kelly gang and all the bank employees head back to the Royal Mail Hotel with their score and Ned buys around for everybody who was in the bank. Um, and then he kind of, like, gets up on the bar and burns all the, like, bank documentation and stuff like that, saying that banks, as a rule, are crushing the life's blood out of the poor, struggling man. Yikes. I know. Yikes. Very, like, Comrade Kelly. Um, so everybody's there at the hotel. They're having drinks. They're having fun times. Um, Ned's like, this has been grand, but I have other things to do. And what he and Joe Byrne have done again the night before is written this incredibly long letter that they want to be published in the newspaper. Um, so this letter, it's known as the Gerildery letter. You can read all of it on the internet. 
it basically has the same kind of content to it as the letter that they wrote to the MP Don Cameron. It's all about the lies, the lies that Constable Fitzpatrick told and the injustice um, of Ned's mother being imprisoned for a crime that she didn't commit. And also, like, there's settler, squatter, dramas and police, I don't want to say police brutality, but, like, police unfairness in Victoria and stuff like that. So Mm. Ned, Ned's got this letter. He's looking for this man who lives in Geraldry, whose name is Samuel Gill, who is the editor of the newspaper there. Um, But Samuel Gill, like, when he's been out and about during the day is like, nobody's in town and there are a lot of people going into the Royal Mail Hotel and not coming back out. I think something is going on. Um, So they head to the bank because he and a group of people, he grabs some some fellows and heads to the bank because he wants to warn them that that he thinks that the Kellys are in town. Um, So he goes to the bank, but he finds Ned Kelly himself. Um, (laughs) Which is just classic. What, what, again, what a classic little skit from a comedy film. Um, so Ned's like, oh, just the man I want to see. And then Sam Gill's like, fuck no. Um, Ned grabs this other guy, a storekeeper, heads him up in prisons in the Royal Mail Hotel um, and goes off to try and find Samuel Gill again. But Samuel Gill has hightailed it, essentially. Um, he's now ridden, this Samuel Gill guy's ridden off to um, a place called Cara Homestead to inform the police that the Kellys are in town. So Ned Kelly goes to Samuel Gill's house and says to Samuel Gill's wife, publish this letter for me. And she's like, no, it's too long. <laughs> I'm not going to publish it for you. So Edward Living, who is also on this journey with them, is like, for fuck's sake, Ned, give me the fucking letter and I'll make sure it's published. And Ned's <laughs> like, oh, I don't want to give you my letter. I really want it to be published. I don't want to get, I've worked really hard on it. Like me and Joe stayed up all night and it's got a lot of like my manifesto in it. And I really just think everybody's going to think I'm good and I'm not going to be an outlaw anymore if people read it. Um, and Edward Living is like, fucking whatever, just give it to me. This is nonsense. So while Ned is out and about trying to get famous, um, Joe Byrne is doing something efficient and he's gone off to the telegraph office to cut all the telegraph wires um, and also to grab the postmaster to take the hotel to the hotel so no information can get out about the Kelly gang. But when he cuts the wires, the people at the neighbouring telegraph offices are like, oh, why is a drilldery have suddenly gone quiet? I wonder if something is going on there. Um, So a few more things happen in town, nothing very important. Um, Ned steals a horse because he can't keep a good man down. Um, But they're, they're having a lark, they're having a good time. Everybody's getting blazed at the Royal Mail. And it's time for them now to take their leave. Um, Everybody's drinking, having a good time, as I said. Ned stands up to give a huge speech, and all the prisoners are like, well, we can't leave, so we have to listen to him. So he gives a big, long speech about the whole affair with Constable Fitzpatrick, tells them that he's an innocent man and that he shot the police officers at Stringerbark Creek in self-defense, essentially. Um, He said, had the police shot us, they would have been praised by the people in the papers for their courage. But as it turned out, they were shot and we were denounced as murderers and bloodthirsty ruffians. And yet, where is the difference? We all had to risk our lives in the encounter. Um, So he's he's really getting G'd up and he's like, guess what, folks? We didn't just come here to rob the bank. We've got something even better to do. We're going to kill the town police officers. And everybody's like, "Uh oh, no, we don't actually want this. So he grabs Constable Riches and um, John Tarleton, the bank manager, is like, 
hey, Ned, mate, we've had a good time, but this is a bit questionable. Um, he's just a police officer trying to do his job. Uh, Ned asked Constable Richards if he was a part of a party of police officers who had shot at four men that were suspected to be the Kelly gang um, at a town near called Tokemol at the New South Wales Victoria border. And Richards was like, yes, I was. I did shoot at those people. And Ned is like, you would shoot at people you didn't know who had never done you any harm. And Constable Richards is like, I'm a police officer. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry. And Ned is like, you would have taken my life if you could, so now you cannot blame me for shooting you. And Richards is like, yes, I can. <laughs> um, <laughs> Richards is like, no, I'm not a fan of that. But he's like, yo, Ned Kelly, if you want, square up. I'll face you in a fair fight and, like, we'll see who the real man is, essentially. And then Ned Kelly's like, you know what, boy? I like your pluck. I'm not going to murder you after all. <laughs> I like your I like pluck. your pluck. Um, <laughs> and the constable's like, sweet, I'm living. Um, Ned Kelly's like, I've made my point. Uh, thank you, Drilldery. You've been great. We'll see you next time. Also, nobody. <laughs> thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Also, nobody <laughs> tell the police that we were here. Otherwise, we will kill every single person in this room. Bye. Um, Peace. Yes, yeah, so they tell the policeman's wife, they go back to the police barracks and they tell the, tell the wife um, to release everybody at the po- who was imprisoned at the police barracks at 7pm when they'll be long gone. Um, so she does that and the postmaster man- manages to wa- get a wire out to Melbourne letting them know that the Kelly gang is struck in Geraldry. Um So yeah, once again, everybody is like either in froth at how dope the Kelly gang is or is like, wow, a scandal has been wrought tonight. Um, but people are like... Look, regardless of what you think about the Kellys, it's pretty stunning that with, like, every single police officer in Victoria and New South Wales on the lookout for them, they literally roll into a town, hold up every single person there in the hotel, get fucked up, rob the bank, try and kill a police officer but don't do it, and then just leave with nobody even knowing that it had, that it had happened. Um, so, again, people are just like, damn, those Kellys, you got to appreciate their style. But yeah, so again, people are either like frothing about how dope it was or they're like a police officer or a member of parliament where they're like, we declare that this was not dope. So the reward for the capture of the Kellys has gone up to £8,000 total, £2,000 for each member of the gang. So this is like a weird nebulous time where like lots of things are happening, but also nothing is happening at once. So Joe and Ned are waiting for the Geraldry letter to be printed in the newspaper but unbeknownst to them the government has like declared that it cannot be published so little bits and pieces end up getting published but the full letter the full letter would never be published much to Ned's bitter disappointment um so a lot of the sympathizers who had been tossed in prison and brought before the police um some of them had been released except uh for Wild Wright and the husband of one of the Kelly cousins um and their cases go to trial with their representation not officially, but most likely paid for by the Kellys. Um, the state of New South Wales is like, man, we got no fucking clue what to do. Um, they organise a group of Indigenous trackers to come down from Queensland to aid in the hunt for the Kellys. And there is a whole lot of racist stuff about this decision that I'm not going to get into because we would be here for another eight hours. Um, but basically the police are like, why would Indigenous people from Queensland be better at tracking the Kellys in Victoria than the white English police? 
And everybody's like, maybe because they know the lay of the land better than you? And the police are like, no, we don't think so, but bring them on in. We may as well give them a go. Um, and the police have also turned to Aaron Sherritt, the former Greta Mob member and friend of the Kellys, also fiancé of Joe Ben's sister, and asked him to spy, essentially. So Aaron is like, oh boy, an opportunity. And he's so excited to like be a double agent, essentially. He is really, he really like big notes his connection with the Kellys to the police. Um, and he, he basically, he tells them that it's only a matter of time before they end up going to Joe Byrne's mother's house. So he and his police mates lie in wait in the bush near this woman's house for a few days waiting for the Kellys to show up. So we're now in um, March of 1879. So... Aaron's there, like, hanging out with the police, and he's, like, telling them all the stories of, like, all the crazy things that he and Ned Kelly got up to in their schoolboy days, kind of. Um, And he says to them, he's, like, boasting to them about, like, how tough he is and stuff like that, and he's like, yeah, and I can take any single one of the Kellys in a fight except for Ned. Ned is fucking terrifying. Ned will fuck anybody up. And the police are lying there, like, under leaves and shit, like, surveying, being like, okay, Aaron, we get it. You're so tough. Um, so Aaron, yeah, Aaron's there hanging out with the police. He's also being a double agent, hanging out with the Burns. Um, and he makes a really crucial error in underestimating Mrs. Byrne, Joe's mum. So Mrs. Byrne is out walking around her property one day and she sees, she literally sees one boot print and a whittled stick in the mud and near the creek near her house. And she's like, there is a police camp watching my house. And so she goes and she tells Aaron her suspicions and Aaron's like, what? That's crazy. No way. That's so crazy that you would think that. There's, there's nothing going on. It's fine. Um, and so he goes and checks it out and comes back and is like, no way, ma'am. No police officers out there watching your property. Everything is fine. And Mrs. Byrne is like, suspicious. I'm sure the police are watching me. So she goes out again like a couple of days later and she sees a, a reflection of light, which turns out to be from like a, a tin of food or something like that. Um and she goes out to investigate. So Aaron and the police are in the bushes at this point. Aaron sees her and they're convinced, the police are convinced that she's seen Aaron as well. And so Aaron that night when he comes home from watching the house is like, hey, Mrs. Byrne, how you doing? And fully expects her to be like, I saw you out there with police officers. But it turns out that she didn't actually recognize him. But she's like, I am sure the police are out there watching me. And... Aaron's like begins to be like oh no and she's like how come I am an old woman and I can tell that we're under surveillance and you can't stupid boy and then by this point she basically knows that Aaron is turn turncoat double agent um so she goes out to investigate herself and the police like see her coming and like try to scare her off and she like stares out into the bush like at all these police officers and says that if Joe would come by he would shoot them all and then she goes to Aaron Sherrod's house and is like, you're out of the family. Your engagement to my daughter is over. You are dead to me. If Joe Byrne ever sees you again, he will kill you. And Aaron Sherrod is like, I have fucked up. So meanwhile, gang is still in hiding. Um, thanks to their network of informants, they know all about the Indigenous trackers and the reward money and everything like that. Um, they kind of like communicate with all their team through like a really cool series of like secret codes and like they pile up rocks in places so they know where they can be found and everything like that. Um, and everywhere they go, they like basically never leave a trace of where they've been. So at this point in time, like sightings of the Kelly gang have kind of decreased and the police are kind of just running around, not 
really doing anything, just like following false leads and stuff like that. So what the government does in this point in time is assemble a list of 80-something poor selectors of the criminal class, including Ellen Kelly, who is still in prison, who haven't finished purchasing their selections and deny them the title. So their thinking there is basically like, well, we'll just cut off the, you know, financial capabilities of these people that are associated with the Kellys. That'll bring them to bay or whatever. Again, people... Even people who aren't Kelly sympathizers are like, this seems like a fucked up thing for the government to do, to tell people that they're denied the right to the land that they legally own because of their association with this group of people. Um, so usual police tech, well, their general police tactics aren't really working. So the police are like, you know what we need? We need a connected network of informants, just like the Kelly gang has, in order to, you know, try and smoke them out. So they start putting a whole bunch of people on the payroll to inform on the Kellys. So one, that and great, one person on this payroll, payroll is Aaron Sherrod, of course. But the operation isn't overly successful. They don't end up making, they don't end up getting a whole bunch of good tips. Um, and as time goes on, the fervor with which the police pursued the Kelly gang seems to wither. At one point um, in March of 1880, Dan Kelly literally goes to the horse races and nobody does anything. Everybody's like, oh, is that Dan Kelly? Interesting. Anyway, I'm betting on this racehorse. Um, But the gang at this point in time are starting to run a little low on cash again. um, And they're a bit sick of hanging out in the bush, mostly doing nothing. So in late March of 1880, some farmers in the Greta area are noticing that some of their farm machinery is going missing, specifically the iron mould boards from their ploughs. The police in Benalla are like, "Mm, yeah, we can't really work out why people are only stealing iron plough boards and nothing else, Um, because they're basically like useless without the rest of the plough to go with it. And then suddenly there's like a blow up of information from the police network of informants um, saying that a huge bunch of Kelly sympathizers have congregated up in Glen Rowan. Also at this point in time, Joe Byrne has discovered that Aaron Sherritt, who used to be his best friend, has become a police informant. So he goes and visits the Sherritt house. He comes across Aaron's mother and is like, What's up, Mrs. Sherrod? I'm going to kill your son and all the police officers that he's in cahoots with. And Mrs. Sherrod is like, uh, please don't do that. Yeah, so he's like, he's like, okay, well, stop. tell Aaron not to, like, pussy out and complain about me to the police. Just kidding. No matter what he does, I'm going to kill him. Bye. And then Mrs. Sherrod, like, rides off to the police station and is like, Joe Byrne just came to my house and threatened my son's life. And the police are like, dope. This is the scoop we've been waiting for. Um, and then Aaron Sherrod is like, do not go after Joe Byrne. You will not find him. He will vanish into the bush. There is no way that you'll be able to catch him. And then all of his cronies are going to tell him that I'm the one who dubbed to the police and then he's going to kill me. And the police are like, oh, great point. We're totally not going to go after the gang member we've been hunting for two years. Just kidding. We absolutely are. Um, And they go off in search of him and, of course, they don't find anything. But they do start surveillance again on Mrs. Byrne's house. Um... So the gang's still up on the bo- up in the bush. They're working on their little project with the iron plowboards that they've stolen, and obviously it was them. Um, and they're planning the next attack. So the plan this time is that they really need something like sweeping and grand that's gonna like completely knock everybody's socks off. 
um, and kind of let the police know that, you know, they've been in hiding, but also they're not going anywhere. Mm. But first they have to settle a score. So in June of 1880, Joe Byrne and Dan Kelly stake out the Sherrod home in the Watershed Valley. They watch the house for an evening and they see Aaron's 15 – Aaron's gotten married to somebody else now. Ooh. Um, they watch – I know. Got over Swift the heartbreak from being told on. that he couldn't marry. That's out. That's the he mood. That's on. the move, mood for 2019. <laughs> mood for 2019. We're just moving on. <laughs> <laughs> moving on swiftly, Aaron Sherritt style. So they notice Aaron's 15-year-old wife, Belle, <gasps> and her mother, Ellen Barry, in the 15? house. It was fine. It was the 1800s. It was fine. It was legal back then. Jesus Christ. Um, Doesn't make it right. No, not at all. <laughs> um, so they're there watching the house. They see the 15-year-old wife and they see her mother inside the house um, and they watch as a man who Joe Byrne knows. His name is Anton Wicks and he's a market gardener in the town. He knocks on the door of their house and Aaron answers the door. So Joe and Dan watch all that. They're like, sick, got what we need, head back to their camp. And then the next evening... When Anton Wicks is going about his merry way, he is accosted by two men on horseback. Ooh, I wonder who they are. Wicks is like, I know, what a mystery. <laughs> Axe is like, get off. Um, <laughs> which they don't. Um, and the man, one of the men is like, I'm Joe Byrne and this is my associate, Mr. Kelly. But he doesn't say that it's not Ned Kelly. Ned's the only real super famous one. Um Tom Wicks is like, ooh, Kelly's, I better do what I'm told. He allows himself to be handcuffed by Dan and Joe. Joe tells Wicks not to be afraid, that he's not going to be hurt, and they only need for him to go with them to Sherrod's shack and obey their instructions from there. So they head out to the shack, and Byrne takes out a shotgun um, and puts it towards Anton Wicks's back. So he walks Wicks to the front door and tells him to knock. Inside, Aaron Sherrod is dining with his wife, his mother-in-law, and a handful of, of his police cronies. So they're all cronies, kind of expecting that fucking cronies. Word. <laughs> I don't really know what that word means. I hope I'm using it correctly. <laughs> um, so when they hear the knock on the door, they kind of all go quiet and like suspenseful and like because they're expecting some kind of retribution. And then Joe tells Anton because they don't respond. Joe tells Anton to call out, which he does. And he's like, oh, it's Wix. I'm lost. Give me directions. And Aaron calls back merrily, you must be drunk, Anton, because Anton was a drunk. Um, <laughs> so Aaron, Aaron comes to the door to help his friend out. Um, and when he opens the door, Joe Byrne takes a step backwards, posi- positioning himself over Wix's shoulder. In the dark, Aaron can't see Joe, but he can hear a sound. He calls out, who's there? And Byrne pulls the trigger. So the shotgun slug hits Aaron in the left side of his throat, severing his jugular vein and sending him flying. Yikes. Joe, not the jugular. That's the big one. Not the, that's, the, that's the main one. <laughs> um, Joe steps into the house and shoots again, striking Aaron in the heart. Aaron falls. Joe says, you will not blow now what you do with us anymore. So Aaron's there, like, dying incredibly dramatically. His, like, wife and mother-in-law are, like, sobbing over his body. But Joe and Dan don't leave. They know that there are more people inside the house. They assume that the police officers are there. And Dan starts, like, shooting through the wall to where he thinks the police officers are. Um, And he actually narrow misses one of the police officers. Um, They kind of try and, like, tempt the cops to, like, come out and, like, have a shootout. But the police don't take the bait. So then they try and burn the house down, which is reasonable. Um, yeah, but the so fire doesn't take. But they're like, okay, look, we've done our job. Aaron Sherrod's dead. We're heading back now. 
So they go back to meet Steve and Ned and Glen Rowan for phase two of the plan. And let me just tell you, the plan is absolutely fucking crackers. So (laughs) what the idea is, is that, so obviously the police are going to hear that the Kelly gang have struck out in the wool shed and murdered one of their former friends turned police informant. And what the Kellys assume that the police are going to do is send a ton of police officers to investigate. So um, the most likely way of transporting these police officers is going to be on the train line. So the plan is for the Kellys to fuck up the train tracks at Glen Rowan, which will make the train crash, killing most of the police officers on board and leaving any survivors as easy pickings for the gang. So while Joe and Dan are out murdering Aaron Sherritt, Ned and Steve get to work removing the iron plates holding the track together. But they quickly realise that it's not the easiest job they've ever undertook and they're going to need a little bit of manpower. Ned's like, no worries, there's a quarry nearby, we'll just go nick some stuff from there. So they go to the quarry and the workers are like, um, we're quarry workers, not rail workers, so we don't really know what we're doing. And Ned's <laughs> like, makes sense, makes sense, you're going to have to come with us anyway though because we're the Kelly gang and now you're being <laughs> imprisoned by us. Um, so they all head back into Glen Rowan. Um, Ned does what he does best, heads up to the pub and is like, hello, publican, um, we're going to need to use your facility as a prison. So he grabs. So sorry. So sorry. So sorry. Um, he grabs the Republican and the daughter, kind of rounds up the whole gang, and they go off to the station master's house next. Um, so Ned Kelly bangs on the door, is like, "Hello, I'm Ned Kelly. Please shoot yourself with fear." Station master's like, "Okay, got it." Um, and then then Ned's like, "Okay, we need help taking up the train tracks." Um, and then the station master is like, "I'm just the station master. I can't really do that, but the guy who can do that is over yonder." So Ned leaves the publican and her daughter with the station master's family and then Ned, the station master and the quarry workers head to the railway repairer guy's house. He does the same thing, knocks on the door, is like, yo, I'm Ned Kelly, do what I want, please. We've been trying for some time now to get somebody to pull up these train tracks. And the railway worker is like, okay, fine. This guy's name is Reardon. So he is brought down to the train tracks and Reardon immediately realises that like where the gang has chosen is actually kind of the best place to organize a train crash. Like it's right, um, right kind of in the worst possible spot for a train to crash and survive. It's kind of down in like a little gully. And he, he knows that if a crash happens there, it's going to be disastrous. So he like, Mm. is like, okay, I'm going to pull up these train tracks, but does it like really slowly and like tries to do like a really shit job (laughs) to kind of like stretch it out. But eventually he is like, okay, I can't fake this any longer. And he gets the job done. Um, Ned chucks a couple of like branches and stuff on the line to hide the brake. And they all, they, he heads back to the station master's house, um, and puts the station master under watch and tells him not to signal anything to the train. And then everybody heads back off to the Glen Rowan Inn for a meal and a wee nap, um, as it's like four o'clock in the morning at this point. Um, so, okay, it's the next day. Um, people are kind of like coming into the Glen Rowan Inn, as you do, and getting imprisoned. Um, because the Kelly gang is there, but actually quite a few of these people are actually Kelly sympathizers. As I said before, quite a few Kelly sympathizers had begun to kind of congregate in Glen Rowan, knowing that something was going to be afoot in that town. So Mm. the idea is that there is enough, there's a good ratio of Kelly sympathizers to non-Kelly sympathizers that if there's any drama, there's enough people that support Ned that will keep these people in line, even if they're not official like gang members. So yeah. The plan from there is basically 
wait for the train of policemen to come through. Like they're standing there hearing out for the whistle. Also, all of these, Glen Rowan is a town like the size of my fingernail. There's like eight buildings there. So they can hear and basically see the railway tracks from where they are. So it's not going to be a surprise when the train comes. Um, But they're there and they're kind of like hanging out and having a gas bag and a beer and stuff as they usually do. Um, But it seems like there's no train coming. And then Kelly is like, hey, bro, um, seems like nothing's coming. Also, we've just committed a murder. Should we possibly think about legging it before we get arrested by some other means? But Ned is like, no, we are making this happen. We are having this stand in Glen Rowan. Shut up, Dan. What the Kellys don't know. (laughs) Shut up, bro. Um, What the Kellys don't know (laughs) is that the four police officers that were inside Aaron Sherrod's house when he got murdered haven't even left the house yet. So they assume that Dan and Joe are still waiting outside to shoot them. So they have just stayed overnight in this house and done nothing about this murder. Um, Then they eventually leave, but not until 9 o'clock the night after the murder. So they head into town. Yeah, so they had into they have to steal somebody's horse to ride into Beechworth because Dan and Joe have stolen their horses. And so when they get to like police HQ at Beechworth, the other police officers are like, So sorry, you are four police officers and you were telling us that a murder happened last night and you've waited until now to let us know about it. Um so they're not super stoked, but eventually they're like, Okay, this has happened, we've got to go after the Kelly gangs. Um, this like top secret, like Kelly gang action plan is like put in place and like every cop is from everywhere is taken to like go to every little town in the Northeast that the Kellys could possibly be like hanging out in. And also a train is sent, um, to head to Benalla. So back at the Glen Rowan Inn, everybody's Mm. dancing, having a good time. Um, Ned has asked people to like play music and sing songs, including folk songs that have been written like about the Kelly gang, which I'm sure like was there went a little boy off. that sang? There was a little boy that sang. Jess, Jack Jones, I believe his name was. <laughs> I know things about the Ned Kelly. I'm so thing. proud of you. I'm so proud of you. So at one point during this hullabaloo, there are 60 prisoners in the Glen Rowan Inn at one time. So it's gone fucking off. It must have been like the party of the year. Um, so while everything's going on, Ned at one point is like, okay, cool. Well, this is sweet, but I'm going to go kidnap the local constable to bring him to the inn, um, to, you know, make sure there's no police officers out there to alert anybody. And then this guy Mm. who's been in prison in the inn, his name is, he's a school teacher and his surname is Kerr now, is like, hey, Ned, my pal, maybe I could go with you and return my family members to our residence also, I'm a Kelly sympathizer. And Ned's like, sure, whatever, I don't care, come to. <laughs> so Ned like goes to get ready, goes into the back room, and he comes out wearing a really suspiciously big, heavy overcoat. And then they all ride off to this constable's house. So it's Ned, Joe Byrne, Colonel, the school teacher, Colonel's cousin Dave, and a couple of prisoners um, all go for good measure to the constable's house. And this is a man by the name of Constable Bracken. So they call for him. Outside the house, he emerges. He's terribly sick with the gastric flu and is not particularly oh, no. stoked to see Ned Kelly at his front door. Um, but Ned's like, yo, buddy, you got to come with us to the hotel. So sorry you're sick. You have to come with us. You're you're being in prison. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay, fine, I suppose. Um, and then on the <laughs> way back, Ned tells Kernow that he can drop his family off but lets him know that he's going to send a member of the gang 
a couple of hours later to make sure that he doesn't do anything that Ned doesn't want. Um, shocking nobody, Kurnow is not actually a Kelly sympathizer. He actually has gotten wind of the plan for the train and he is determined to signal the train when it comes by so he can like slow it down and make sure it doesn't crash, which is like solid. I understand that. So Kurnow kind of like heads off in the opposite direction um, to try and meet the train. So Ned, Hugh Bracken, the police officer, and everybody else heads back to the inn. They have some more dancing and music because what else do you do when you're waiting to murder a train full of people? Dan again is like, Ned, mate, these people have been here for ages. There's no sign of a train. Maybe we should head off. And Ned's like, "Mm, okay, maybe. But first I'm going to give a nice long lecture. So once again, he gets up like on the bar and starts talking about like all the members of parliament that he hates, um, everything that's ever been done wrong to him in his life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then at one point Dan's like, Ned, shut the fuck up. What was that? And they're like, okay, no, it's nothing. Keep lecturing. (laughs) Then they're like, wait, no, shut up again. And it is the whistle of the motherfucking train. And they're all like, okay, the train is coming. This is happening. Everybody stop drinking. Get your gear on. Let's go. Um, so it is indeed the train finally coming after like a day and a half. Um, but there is a slight snag in the Kelly's plans. Kurnow has fulfilled his life's mission and has managed to signal the train. So the train slows down. Um, Kurnow's there holding like a burning scarf, like flagging the train. Um, and it slows down and the driver asks Kurnow what the <laughs> drama is. And he says that the Kellys have taken over the Glen Rowan Inn. Um, this is at like also at like midnight and everybody, all the police officers on the train are like asleep. So when they find out like what's going on, they're like, what? Glen Rowan? We, what? We don't understand what's going on. Um <laughs> And then they're kind of like, oh, wait, this whole thing has been a trap so they can get us at Glen Rowan when we least expect it. And then they're like, "Mm, that's kind of fucked. Like, that's kind of like terrorism, man. Like, blowing up a train full of police officers. Like, it's one thing to murder, like, three police officers out in the bush, but to, like, literally blow up a train, it's like some next-level shit. It's it's, it's another another level. Yeah, yeah. But they keep on, like, slowly going towards Glen Rowan, knowing now that they can't go past the station or they will crash and die. Um, as I said, everything in Glen, Glen Rowan is really close to each other. They can tell, like, by hearing that the, the train has slowed down and they realise that Kurnow basically was not a sympathiser and has betrayed them. Um, so the gang is like, well, what do we do? Our plan's not going to go to plan. And Ned's like, well, we, are you here to fuck spiders or kill cops? Get your fucking gear on. Let's go. <laughs> So they all go into, like, the back room of the hotel and what I imagine, again, is, like, so dope, like, strap on all their sick fucking armour that they made out of those plow boards. Um, If you don't know who Ned Kelly is and haven't seen the armour, Google it. It looks weird but kind of dope. Um, (laughs) So they strap on all their armour. Ned has a look outside, sees the train stopped before the station and before the trap that they have laid. And the police are kind of like unloading horses. They, The police have assumed at this point that the Kellys have known that the train has slowed down and would have escaped on horseback and need to be pursued. They don't realise that the Kellys are preparing to fight. Jess, are you there? Okay. I'm there. You, just, yeah. you disappeared. Um, I disappeared. So sorry. back inside the inn, uh, Constable Bracken kind of realises what is about to happen and tells all of the prisoners to lay low. He also has taken the opportunity to steal the front door key, um, which one of the gang just like left casually on the mantelpiece, which was a good idea. Um, so he tells everybody to lay low, unlocks the front door and sprints out of the inn and towards the train. 
So he reaches the train as, like, they're unloading all the horses and stuff to, like, go in pursuit of the Kellys and informs all the police officers that they are not fled, that they're still inside the inn, that there's a ton of prisoners in there and they've got to, like, do something sharpish. Um, so the policemen are all there. They're led by a man named Superintendent Hare who's been chasing Ned now for the better part of two years and they're like... Okay, alrighty, here we go. Is that the one that Jeffrey Rush played in the movie? I'm intimately familiar with the Ned Kelly film. <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie since I was like six. Um, yeah, so they're like, okay, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna surround the inn. We're gonna do it. Um, but they're a little bit like terrified and don't actually know what's gonna happen. But eventually, they kind of spread out around the inn, um, and. The Kellys are standing there waiting for them on the veranda, looking incredibly dope in their scary armor and big coats. They're almost entirely hidden by the darkness of the night, so the police officers can't actually see that they're standing there. So Ned is standing off to the side and watching the troopers approach. He raises his gun and fires, immediately hitting Superintendent Hare right in the wrist. And Superintendent Hare exclaims, Good gracious, I am hit the very first shot. Once again, another guy announcing that he's shot. Once again, announcing all these old-timey people, all they ever did was, like, die of consumption. Oh, no, I am shot. Claim that they were shot. And then from... We know. Okay. We saw the gunshot, buddy. (laughs) From there, the Kellys basically just begin firing at will. Superintendent Hare gathers himself enough to demand that they surrender in the name of the Queen, to which Dan replies, surrender be buggered. Um... I love that. Surrender, Surrender be, be buggered. Um, oh, so the good. troopers are returning fire. Um, Hare orders them all to surround the inn. And he's like clutching onto his like bleeding, falling off left hand with his right. Um, the police are trying to like take cover behind whatever bits and pieces they can find. And as they're shooting, they kind of notice that their bullets are making like a really weird sound. Like a like the, like a hammer hitting like a an ting? anvil, like a ting, and they're like, like a "What ting. is that weird noise?" So <laughs> Ned starts walking slowly down the slope, firing at police, and like smoke is clouding the air. And a trooper takes aim at him and shoots. And Ned laughs, saying, "You can't hurt me. I am an iron." The trooper is like, "This is oh. the most terrifying moment of my entire life," um, <laughs> and like is like shaking and like freaked out and tries to shoot Ned Kelly in the torso, but he misses and hits him in the leg. See, the problem with the armour is that it's very, like... It's only down to, like, mid-thigh, isn't it? It's only mid-thigh. It's like a head and torso (laughs) dominant suit of armour. So their arms and their legs kind of aren't really covered. Makes so much more sense as to why he was limping. I was like, why is he limping? Because he got shot in the leg, Jess. Because he got shot in the leg, yeah, yeah. Um, Ned... Yeah, so Ned is struck um, in the right foot and twice in the left arm, and he like is like, oh, fuck me, what? And then he stumbles back towards the inn, wounded. Um, also, sidebar, everybody inside the inn is getting like fucked up from gunfire. Um, the police have fanned out like all the way around the inn. Um, and there's uh, not so many got killed. A couple of people got shot. Um, I think only one definitely, possibly two... Did the kid die? I can't remember if the kid died. Um, one old man. Well, that's what happened in the Kelly play. The kid died. The kid died. Yeah, I think the kid did die. Um, the kid is the the son of the publican. Getting ahead of ourselves here, but I do think he did die. He got shot in the head. Um, but yeah, the the police are all the way outside the inn, and there's like kind of like a little lull in the fighting, and the police can hear a yell from inside the inn, pleading them to stop shooting, as it's filled with women and children. Um, 
the police kind of hold their fire for a little while and in this period of relative calm, Ned and Joe find each other again at the inn. Joe is badly injured, as is Ned, but Ned wants to continue fighting. Steve and Dan are kind of checking on all the prisoners inside the inn and they realise that Constable Bracken has managed to escape. Unbeknownst to them, he's ridden off to Wangaratta to inf- to warn them not to send another train back the other way um, and let them know that the Kellys are in Glen Rowan. So Ned wants him and Joe to go up and around the police officers and attack from behind. So they kind of have Joe and Ned on one side, Dan and Steve on the other, and the police officers will all get caught in the crossfire. But Joe is actually too injured to go anywhere. So Ned tells Joe and the other two to barricade the inn with furniture and whatever else they find, and he goes off alone in serious pain. So he's like, all right, you're going to head round, going to shoot the cops from behind, going to fuck these people up, goes up the slope into the bush and promptly passes out from the pain. <laughs> so the siege of- That's a mood. <laughs> what a mood. So the siege of the inn continues for a fair amount of time. Um the daughter of the innkeeper leads an escape of the women and children. Um, a lot of the prisoners have been shot and are quite wounded. Um, Constable Bracken has actually succeeded in alerting additional police at Wangaratta who have now jumped enthusiastically into the gunfight. Additional support has also come from Benalla. Um, the reinforcements mean that the police can now fully surround the entire inn. So Superintendent Sadlia um, is like walking around the perimeter and then he's informed by the person, the trooper that shot Ned in the leg, that the Kelly gang are in armour, which is why it's taken so much bloody time to fucking <laughs> shoot any of them down. And why it's making um, such a nice noise when you shoot them. Why it's making such a fun pink noise. <laughs> um, and then another group of officers have noticed um, blood and like a skull cap outside of the inn, which leads them to believe that some of the Kelly gang has escaped. Um, nevertheless, the siege continues. Um with the, the new arrivals, both from Benalla and from um, Wangaratta, are like, yes, we went in on this shit. So, like, this family, um, the the railway repairman's family are, like, trying to escape and the new police people who have arrived actually shoot at them, even though it's, like, a family of women and children trying to leave. Not stunning. Um, not stunning. Nobody dies. Um, anyway, meanwhile, back in the bush, Ned wakes up from his kip um, he's kind of confused and bleeding. He's in pain, but he's still bloody minded. And so he decides to head on back to the inn. He greets Joe, um, before heading back inside to talk tactics with Dan and Steve. Um, so Joe is like, you know what I really need at this point in time? A drink. So he nips into the, <laughs> nips into the bar area and pours, pours a slug of whiskey, puts his foot like dramatically up on like the, the lower part of the bar, raises his glass gives a toast to many more years in the bush for the Kelly gang, has a drink and is immediately shot in the groin, <sighs> severing his femoral artery and he bleeds to death on the floor of the inn. Goodbye. Goodbye, Joe Byrne. So sorry. Ned is like, Ned comes in and is like, this is not a stunning development. <laughs> this is not a stunning development. <laughs> Ned Kelly is deeply upset by this murder. Um, I'll have so you all has- know that Ellen is... Currently drinking a beer as she tells you this story. I'm smashing a cascade draft while I'm recounting this tale. Um, so Ned's pissed. He heads out on the veranda to have a little bit of a yell at the police. And when he comes back, he can't actually find Dan and Steve inside the bar. And then he's like, oh, fuck is all. Um, <laughs> he heads back outside the inn. And what happens to him at this point in time is actually not known in the historical record. So there's a period of time where Ned Kelly vanishes from the siege. 
Um, Peter Fitzsimmons, who wrote the book that I read on this subject, um, believed that he went to a like a rendezvous point in the bush to inform sympathizers that Joe was dead and that the siege was not going according to plan. Um, but he also says maybe he went for another kip. Um, anyway, regardless of what happens, Ned's out in the bush for a while, maybe dealing with his feelings for a bit. Aww, um, poor Ned. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Something happens. He returns back to the inn. Um, a man named Constable Arthur um, is, like, taking a break from shooting to light his pipe and hears, like, a rumble in the bushes. Oh, no, not a rumble his, in the bushes. Not a rumble. Not a rumble in the bushes. So he aims his gun towards the noise and demands that the thing stop or he'll shoot. And in his words, a strangely metallic voice r- rings back saying, I could shoot you, Sonny. <laughs> So this figure, Sonny Jim, Sonny, I can shoot you, Sonny Jim. <laughs> I haven't seen one of you around here in 25 years. <laughs> anyway, so this giant, to this Constable Arthur, this impossibly giant figure emerges from the bush. Um, he seems like just freakishly like monstrous and slow moving and heavy. So this figure raises his gun to Constable Arthur and tries to shoot, but it's like he can't lift his arm all the way up and the shot ends up in the ground. The figure gathers himself a little, beginning to walk down the slope and he's firing at all the officers there with his right hand. Um, the other police is... Let me guess, it's Ned Kelly. Yes, for fuck's sake. Every time I try to build suspense, you're like, this is what happens. Yes, of course, it's Ned <laughs> Kelly. I'm trying to describe what it was like from, like, the police officer's point of view. <laughs> Seeing this huge fucking... With all this armour, they looked like they were, like, seven feet tall and, like, huge. Imagine you're there in the middle of the Australian bush. You're some teenager from Ireland who's like, I want to become a police officer in Australia. I know that wasn't an Irish accent. <laughs> But you're there at this, like, siege. It's, like, the biggest day of your entire life. And this seven-foot-tall metallic monster (laughs) emerges from the bush. There's smoke everywhere. Your friends are dying on the ground. And this person just walks out, starts shooting at you. You're shooting back, but the bullets aren't doing anything. Like, you're there point blank shooting this person. You're seeing the shot go into what should be their body, but nothing is happening. So Ned Kelly, thanks for ruining the suspense, Jim, <laughs> keeps on walking down this slope and he's just taking all this fire. Oh, she's so mad at me, Zane. Oh, my God. <laughs> she's so angry. <laughs> I'm trying to construct a narrative. <gasps> anyway, it doesn't matter. So he's walking down the slope. All the police officers are like, what the fuck? This is the devil. They're, like, freaking out and Ned... Kelly is like, I'm the bossest bitch that has ever lived. He's out there. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. He's out there. He's calling for Dan and Steve to come and join the fight, which they don't actually do. And although he is actually taking the police officer's fire quite fine, one officer notices how unsteady he is with firing back, although he is, like, being cocky and taunting the police and saying, like, you can't hurt me. But at the same time, he, like, can't really, like, lift up his arms. Um, so at one point he stops, puts his bag down, goes to grab a different gun. Um, and there's one police officer who's watching him literally was like, I was so transfixed by Jess is not paying attention to me because Fifi is sitting in her lap. Please let's be professional, shall we? I'm I'm sorry. She was just making this face and I couldn't fucking take it. I'm back. Dan and yeah. Okay. Dan Kelly's being a pussy. The end. Yep. Keep going. Okay. That was five hours ago, but sure. 
Um, <laughs> so he's there, like, trying to get all this, like, a different gun out of his bag. Um, somebody shoots him. He, again, in the hand, which knocks the weapon out of his hand, but he just grabs another fr- gun from his bag and, like, keeps on going. Walks right out into the open, no cover, just, like, in the grass, being like, okay. And he's, like, confused as to why Dan and Steve aren't joining him in this assault. Um, he's kind of being like flanked by officers on both sides, but keeps moving forward with shots like pinging off his armor. So there's four police officers now shooting at Ned in close quarters. Um, Ned, the, the impact of the bullets on his armor, Ned said was like getting punched. So like as if a man was punching him over and over again. Um, so he's like Mm. staggering around a bit, but he doesn't fall. Um, Ned fires a shot at this man named Sergeant Steele who dives from the ground to avoid it. When he dives to the ground, he realizes that he can clearly see that Ned doesn't have any armor covering his legs. So he aims his shotgun and shoots Ned with a round of bullets, um, which is, they called swan drop, but we would probably know more as like buckshot, which is like a, like a cartridge full of like smaller little like bullets. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he hits them with this, this buckshot, um, Ned cries out, he staggers, but he still doesn't fall, takes aim at Sergeant Steele, and Steele actually shoots Ned, Ned's legs again. He still doesn't fall, raises his arm again to try and shoot at Sergeant Steele, but he can't actually manage to lift up his arm all the way, and it falls to his side, useless. The off, all the police officers now are like, oh, fuck, he's, he's going he's gonna to fall, he's going to die, it's happening. Um they run up and they try and rush him, but Ned cries out and says, that is enough, I'm done, and then falls. So the police officers all, like, converge on him. It's over. It's over. Um, the police officers are all, like, converging on him, but Ned is actually still, like, lying on the ground trying to shoot them over his shoulder. Um, but eventually they do manage to subdue him and they wrench the gun from his hand. Sergeant Steele, like, comes up and is, like, clearly, like, in the throes of battle and points his gun at Ned's head. And then another police officer is like, yo, do not kill him. That is about. And Sergeant Steele is like, okay, fine. So Ned Kelly has finally fallen. Um, So Ned's armor is being, like, taken off from his, like, body, um, which is a pretty difficult task because the armor actually weighs about 100 pounds. Um. So he's fucking heavy. Fucking heavy. He's getting examined by the doctor and then he's eventually picking up and taken from the field. Um, he's at first taken to like a guard van to be examined, but he has to be moved again because Dan and Steve keep on firing at everybody who's like looking at him from the inn. So he's then taken to the station master's house, um, placed on a stretcher, and they take off all his clothes layer by layer to better examine his wounds. Get ready to motherfucking cry. So underneath his coat, his armor, and all his bush clothes, Ned was wearing the green sash that he had received when he was a child for saving the boy from drowning in Avondale. Oh, when he was the hero. When he was the hero. So he had he kept that sash all that time and wore it, like, during this last stand. Anyway, I'm going to cry. Um, you are. I can see. The tears in your eyes, you loser. It's just, it's just like deep, yo. Anyway, um, so the police are there questioning <laughs> Ned. <laughs> and they're like questioning him, being like, yo, mate, what the hell? And Ned's like, oh, no, you know. Um, his wounds are being treated and everything like that. His right foot is basically falling off, as is one of his thumbs. But he's like chatting and like kind of like vaguely unbothered by the whole thing. Um, he drinks some brandy that's offered to him and asks for some bread, which like somebody rushes off to find for him. And then Sergeant Sadlier asks if Dan and Steve are likely to surrender, which Ned says they aren't. 
Um, one police officer asks why Ned didn't run away from the fight when he had a chance. And Ned thinks about it as if he'd never considered the idea before and said, a man would be a nice sort of dingo to walk out on his mates. Because mateship's what it's all about. <laughs> at the end of the day. <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, anyway, outside the station master's house where Ned Kelly is lying, captured and defeated, the police are trying to deal with the remaining gang members inside the inn. They fear, their worry is that a whole bunch of like Kelly sympathizers are going to roll up on the place at any moment, which would outnumber the police and therefore kill them all. They're not super keen for that. So they go, um, they dispatch some more reinforcements from Melbourne and basically mount the fight anew. Um, Dan and Steve and everyone who is inside the inn, Dan and Steve like tell everybody inside the inn that they can surrender. Um, Dan and Steve don't stop the prisoners from leaving and then they all walk out waving a white handkerchief to show that they're surrendering. Um, so they rush out of the inn. They are pleading not to be shot because some of the police officers are still pretty trigger happy. Um, and the prisoners inform the police that while Joe Byrne is dead, Dan and Steve are relatively unharmed. By now it's daybreak. Um, reinforcements have come from Melbourne and they immediately begin shooting at the inn, but then they stop and there is a strange kind of like ceasefire that happens. There's no gunfire coming from inside the building and the police officers outside don't know if Dan and Steve are dead or if they're playing some kind of trick. So because it's daytime, the police are like, well, Dan and Steve, they're they're not going to be able to escape. So we basically either just have to wait for nightfall for them to try and leave or try and shoot them. What should we do? One officer, um, Senior Constable Charles Johnston, is like, I have... Why don't we just set the inn on fire? And Sergeant Sadlier is like, you know what? Go for it, Charles Johnson, but make sure you are the only person that knows about this plan. So Johnson gets some kerosene and cautiously makes his way to the side of the inn. By this point, a lot of like people have heard about the siege and a huge crowd of onlookers have heard the news and decided to come and be a part of the siege at Glen Rowan. So one person amongst them is a Catholic priest whose name is Father Gibney. Um, so he goes and he actually visits Ned and um, gives him a sacrament. Um, other people that arrive include uh, Maggie and Kate Kelly, Dan and Ned's sisters, um, along with Wild Wright. So Kate and Maggie both beg to go and see Dan inside the inn, but the police won't let them because the, the sisters say that they're not going to force Dan and Steve to surrender if they don't want to, basically. And Father Gibney asks to go too, seeing it as that seeing it to be his moral duty to go help the two men, but Sergeant Sadlier refuses. So around the side of the inn, Charles Johnson has succeeded in setting the hay on fire, and slowly but surely it catches, spreading to the side of the inn. Father Gibney is like, I cannot watch these two people be set ablaze. He charges forward, past Sergeant Sadlier, and breaks his rapidly burning inn. He finds Joe Byrne first, cold to the touch, and then at the back of the inn, he sees a peculiar sight. Dan and Steve are lying on their backs with their head on rolled-up calico sacks like pillows. There appear to be no gunshots or other obvious mortal wounds, and it appears to Father Gibney that they have committed suicide and staged their body in such a way that is evident to whoever finds them that they did not die at police hands. So Father Gibney calls to the police to come and retrieve the bodies, but the inn is burning too quickly. They manage to grab the body of Joe Byrne, still in his armour. As the inn burns to ashes, the onlookers the mangled bodies of Dan and Steve lying next to each other. So now, three days after the murder of Aaron Jarrett, the siege is now over, with Ned Kelly the sole surviving Kelly gang member. Jesus fucking Christ. 
Jesus fucking Christ. So <laughs> I'm going to skip over a whole bunch of stuff here. Um, so a few months later, Ned is committed to stand trial for the murders of Constable Lonergan and Constable Scanlon, the police officers that were killed at Stringy Bark Creek. Um, so the trial for the murder of Constable Lonergan goes pretty poorly for Ned. Although he had the cash for legal representation when his supporters were at trial, the same could be for him. So he was represented by this lawyer who had never tried a case in front of a jury, let alone a Supreme Court trial on behalf of the most famous criminal in the country. So he, 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 he did his best, but his best was not very good. <laughs> God. Um, the majority of the evidence was witness testimony that was given by Constable McIntyre, who was the sole survivor of the Tr- Stringy Buck Creek affair, and then a number of the people that Ned had imprisoned over the years and talked to about the crime. Um, so, yeah, all this best witness testimony was given. Um, people like Robert Scott, the manager of one of the banks that he robbed, gave testimony confirming that Ned had admitted to committing the crimes but the the big thing that was missing from his defense was the fact that he had shot Constable Lonigan in self-defense so mm. it was very much painted as though it was a cold-blooded act and even though um, Constable McIntyre initially said at the time that Constable Lonigan had raised his pistol to shoot Ned now his testimony was that Ned had shot him in cold blood and although some of the witnesses kind of said that Ned had said that it was in self-defense. His defense barrister was just not good enough at his job to be able to really question that and come up with a substantial defense, which Ned was unhappy about. And it's like, look, if I question these people, there was no way in hell people would imprison me for this crime. But honestly, Mm. it kind of doesn't matter whether or not he would be convicted of that crime because he was... His fate was not looking good regardless. So for this trial, it took the jury yeah. half an hour to find Ned guilty. So the judge um, was a man named Justice Barry, who had sentenced Ned's mother to prison for the attempted murder of Constable Fitzgerald. So he gave Ned the sentence that he was to be hung from the neck till dead. And he said to Ned, and may God have mercy on Ned. I will go a little further than that. Say, I will see you there where go. Fucking savage. There. Ned sent back into custody. The people basically at this point are furious. So a petition has started and it ended up garnering over 60,000 sentences asking for Ned's life to be spared. Um, 6,000 people gathered on Guy Fawkes night to protest the sentence. This is, this is November 5th, 1880 for the people keeping score. Um, and protests would continue up until the day of Ned's execution. So the day before that Ned is to be executed, he's allowed to see his beloved mother in his cell. And she tells them how proud she is of him and of everything that he's done. And his her last words to him are, mind you die like a Kelly son. He's also visited by his sisters and his brother Jim, who it now falls on to lead the Kelly family, as well as his cousins Tom and Kate Lloyd. His last meal would be roast lamb and peas and a bottle of red wine. Going Love out it. in style. <laughs> you can't relate because you're a vegetarian. So- <laughs> But the wine can't relate. Go down a tree. Can't relate. Never had roast lamb. I'm sure it's, it's delicious. really fucking The wine, good. for sure. I believe you. Um, so Ned Kelly was hanged on the 11th of November, 1880. His last words were reported to be such as life, although there is speculation over whether or not that. that was true. I believe it's true, and I also you don't believe, believe it really so matters much because it's become such is legend. True. Yeah, I believe in ghosts. <laughs> 
the issue is not my belief, but I really don't think that it matters whether or not it's true if that was his last words because it's become such like an iconic phrase. Such is life. That truth is kind of not a part of it. Such is life. Oh, fucking hell. What fucking last words? I hope my last words are one fiftieth as dope as that. Um, and another great thing that you're willing to, you're allowed to believe or not believe as you will, is that his mother, who is still imprisoned in Melbourne jail at this time, was working in the laundry at the time of the execute, execution and heard his cries and the sound of the tap door being opened while he, Ned was being hanged. I hope that's not true for her sake, but also if that is true, very dope addition to the legend. <laughs> is it a Tasmanian thing to say dope now? I'm not encouraging this. I don't think it's a Tasmanian thing. It's, I think it's just a me thing. Anyway, that was Ned Kelly part two. Holy fucking shit, Ellen. You did so much work on that. I'm so proud did of I you. Did I change your opinion about Ned at all? That's all I care about. Um, you listeners, you probably don't know how much Jess and I have fucking, the only other thing that we argue about it as much as John Bonet Ramsey. We have argued so much about <laughs> Ned Kelly, even before this podcast began one year ago. Did I change you? A mind I feel a like bit? he was, I feel like he was wronged a little bit. I also feel like he did a lot. I think he did a lot of bad shit. Oh, look, did he, he definitely probably did murder deserve people? to go yes. to prison? But he, yeah. Um, yeah. But the thing is, is that he wasn't in prison know. for any of the bank robberies or anything like that. He was he was sentenced to death for a murder, which was, you know, if you believe his murder. story, the the shooting of Constable Lonergan was in self defense because he was a police officer who raised a gun to him first. So, what are you supposed yeah. to do if somebody raises a gun to you? I mean, not that I'm justifying Ned Kelly. At the end of the day, I he is know. a criminal. I don't want to find myself in that position. I don't think I ever will find myself <laughs> in that yeah, position. I don't know. I'm really happy that you did this. I'm also really happy I went and saw Kelly by Matthew Ryan yeah. that I saw in Brisbane a few weeks ago because um, I obviously hearing the facts of the case that you presented and what I saw on stage were a bit different, mm-hmm. but it's made me sympathetic towards him. Well, that's it's all made I me Sympathetic towards him. I don't, I, I'm not a, about to go and hang a Ned Kelly tapestry in my bedroom. So you don't want a Ned Kelly Sorry? t-shirt that says Australian Bush legend? <laughs> Wanted £8,000 reward for the robbery of two banks, the murder of two policemen and the attempted derailing of a train and defying British rule. That's what my shirt says. No, I, I, I don't want that. Thank you. But I can understand why people, uh, yeah. It, it's an, it's incredible. It? It's, yeah, it's incredible the effect that Ned Kelly and the Kelly gang had on the general public, especially with like the petition going around to like have his charge go from death to life and sen- life imprisonment and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And I feel like it obviously was empowering for a lot of people to see a man rally against law enforcement that was, you know, being prejudicial and yeah. that sort of things. Cause I, I feel like in situations like that, when, a group of people has so much power over you and, you know, yes, maybe you've done something wrong, but they're just completely taking it out of hand. Like I can understand someone like yeah. Nick Kelly being inspirational to people. Well, great. Yeah. Um, so that's fucking Victoria Diamond. Oh, my God, we finished Victoria. Finally, we've been here so long. <gasps> we've been here for so long. Um, well, thank you so much to everybody listening. Um, 
we I have to say, I think Victoria's been a really difficult season for both of us. There's been some really so difficult. We've had such a spectrum of yeah, cases. Um, but it's we also just found out in the middle of recording that it is we are up to almost five and a half thousand subscribers, which is so fucking exciting. Um, and it's coming up on a year of us yeah. doing this project together. Well, yeah, a year of us like planning this project and doing it together. So it's really exciting. And now we're moving on to Tasmania, Ellen's now place of residence. The best state in Australia. <laughs> so we've got some like ugly bananas cases. Some the thing about bangers. Tasmania is that everybody down here has just like gone crazy because it's like cabin fever. <laughs> yeah. So the shit that happens down here is insane. <laughs> So um, we've got some absolute banger cases coming up for the Tasmanian season and that will be getting cracking in a fortnight. Basically Holy straight shit. away, yeah. Um, so research starts tomorrow. Um, but thank you so much. Make sure that you're subscribed. You can find us on Spotify and iTunes. Please tell your friends. I've had so many people that I've met through other friends that know me as the podcast girl and have said that they've really enjoyed the show so far. So that's great. Um, make sure that you're leaving. I've reviews. never met a single person who knows who I am. <laughs> well, I'm just very famous. Um, make sure you're rating and reviewing. You it's really helpful for us. If you have any uh, cases that you'd like us to look at for the Tasmanian season or for our South Australia season, which will be coming up afterwards, uh, check out our Facebook um, and you can also become a Patreon. You'll find that link in the show notes. Uh, we will have some Patreon-only content coming this week as well. And thank you so much to the people that have become Patreons so far. We're completely we love you that you so want to be on much. This journey, it's so nice. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us this week, and we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.